And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is March 6th. 65th day of the year. 300 days remain to the end of the year. You know, it's also been a interesting day, a date as far as holidays goes, it is National Dress Day. Everybody run out and get a dress. National Oreo Cookie Day. National First Week. God, I hated those. This is also the week you return borrowed books. Read an ebook week. National School Social Work Week. Oh, God, don't you love school social workers? If you're a boy, they tell you you ought to be a girl. And if you're a girl, they tell you you ought to be a boy. That's what passes for social work today. Dental Assistant Recognition Week. National Groundwater Awareness Week. National Consumer Protection Week. Endometriosis Week. National Professional Pet Sitters Week. I'm not a profession for you. Cheerleading Week. Will Eisner Week. Write a Letter Appreciation Week. Universal Human Beings Week. Butcher's Week. Fair Trade Fortnite. No More Week. British Pie Week. Women in Construction Week. National Procrastination Week. National Nutrition Month, National Women's History Month, National Hemophilia Awareness Month, Multiple Sclerosis Awareness Month, National Social Work Month, National Small Press Month, National Kidney Month, National Peanut Month, in honor of the peanut man himself, National Craft Month, International Ideas Month. National Caffeine Awareness Month, Endometriosis Awareness Month, Rising Star Month, National Credit Education Month, National Cheerleading Safety Month, National Umbrella Month, and National Music in Our Schools Month. Well, you know, it's interesting. There have been so many Special interest groups carried on about getting a month for this and a month for that and a month for the other. And all of them together amount to nothing. Absolutely nothing. All right. As I said in the last show, even the Nazis had an issue with UFOs. No less a person as Werner von Braun. The Nazi, who really wasn't a Nazi, said, well, the 100 billion stars in our galaxy alone, what makes us think we're the only life form? Well, he got an answer to that question, February 3rd, 1942. Hannah Rice was an aviatrix, Germany's most famous female test pilot. She flew the world's first operational rocket-powered fighter plane. 
The Messer Smith 163A V4 Comet. It can climb at 525 feet a second to seven and a half miles above the earth. I'm going straight up into the sky. And even though it was traveling at an unheard speed at that point in time, a silver disc flew past it as though it was standing still. It went up to twenty six to 60,000 feet, 2,600 feet higher than the Smithsonian's uh, maximum ceiling. And then it vanished at an unthinkable speed. Now, had our flight crews witnessed her close encounter, it would have agreed what she saw was a typical Foo Fighter. And assuming that such nimble enigmas were Nazi secret weapons of some kind, we were surprised to learn after the war that the Germans had no less frequently witnessed the same phenomena which they attributed to our secret weapons. Now, a man named Henry Stevens wrote a book called Hitler's Flying Saucers. And he said in that book, rumors of these objects circulated in... Luftwaffe pilot circle since the summer of 44. Same year they were first seen in significant numbers by Allied airmen. And when their aircraft and several RAF bombers had been buzzed by Foo Fighters after dark January 1st, 1945, Lieutenant Jack Green and his navigator, Lieutenant Warren Barber, were told by an ex-intelligence officer the German pilots that were up that night reported identically the same thing as the British. And the Americans. And even the Germans couldn't figure out what these things were. Now, a typical German encounter, uh, confirmed rather unusually by both visual and ground radar contacts at the same moment, took place March 14, 1942, at 5.35 p.m. As a pilot of a Mrs. Smith <coughs> 109, Good Lord, everything is having system troubles today. I had some kind of outage last night, and it seems to have affected my system. But anyway, as the pilot of the Messersmith Smith 109 um, F4Z, which was designed for high-altitude performance, was flying patrol 39,370 feet over Norway's Banach Peninsula, he was approached by a featureless, cigar-shaped object 50 feet in diameter, 330 feet long. They kept pace with him for a minute and then shot straight up at an impossible speed. Foo Fighters even seen by civilian ground observers in Germany. Late June of 44, Martha Fritsch, the wife of physics professor Alois French, saw the outline of a perfectly elliptical flying object in the twilight. It appeared to her to be operating by some other means of flight than was normally the case because of its sudden directional changes. And her reaction was that it was an enemy flying object, and it scared the crap out of her. Another ground sighting was made about that same time by Heinz Heller, commanding officer of a German army truck company in Corville, France, after the British, Canadians, and Americans had landed at Normandy. 
Convoy was concealed under an overhanging orchard where he and most of his men were asleep at three in the morning when the sharp report of a gunshot gunshot um, got him all to their feet. Been fired by a sentry that observed a round-shaped thing looking like a disc of about 20 meters. That's about 65 feet in diameter. Very slightly luminous. Moving about 20 miles an hour about 30 feet above the ground, and then accelerated vertically at an incredible speed, shining stronger and making a swooshing sound. He fired his rifle not at the thing, but to wake up his comrades. And recounting the, the sighting, uh, it was related how the following morning the orchard's owner was questioned, said his grandfather once had seen a similar apparition over the same field. It seemed to come back to the same points, time and time again. The crew in the German submarine U-629 experienced a remarkable close encounter out at sea in the North Atlantic Ocean during their vessel's 10th patrol. One clear, calm evening between March 10th and 14th, 1944, the, the Type 7C boat was surfaced in the Bay of Biscay when the radar operator reported an airborne contact approaching at an exceptionally high speed. Before Obert Lieutenant Zur C, that's the equivalent to a Lieutenant Junior Grade in the, the, our Navy, Hans Helmuth Bugs pronounced books, by the way, B U G S as books. It was keeping his lookouts company on the conning tower. Could sound the alarm, the sub was approached the beam by a flying disc that winked white, yellow, and red at the Germans and but didn't make any threatening moves. And whatever message the strange vehicle may have been attempting to send to them, they couldn't guess and refrained from responding with their signal lights. Otherwise, motionless disc hovered as though nailed in place, maybe 40 feet above the water, for less than five minutes, as though waiting for an answer to its tricolor display. Then it disappeared vertically into the night sky at an impossible speed. In a reaction typical for the times, the, the lieutenant surmised the Allies were using some kind of new aircraft. Nobody stopped to think that these may be uh, extraterrestrial aircraft. June 7, 1944, during the U-629's next cruise, an RAF B-24 Liberator long-range uh, heavy bomber, the 53rd Squadron, Attacked with depth charges in English Channel as the crew was about to intercept Allied naval forces supporting Operation Overlord's invasion of Normandy. U-629 was sunk with the loss of all hands. As uh, Germany's chief source of oil, Romania was often targeted by U.S. bombers. Immediately following one raid, August 1st, 1943, engineer George Zimmernau was standing near Vaj's Vaj oil refinery with, where one of its petroleum tanks was still burning when he noticed a pointed object coming from the north. He said it was yellow, had a whitish tail, which, when it met the clouds of smoke, seemed to short and vibrate in a strange way. It was traveling at a high rate of speed, and over the burning refinery it turned, stopped momentarily, and zigzagged toward the north and vanished. Three years before, south of Hungary, Romania's uh, Next-door neighbor, Nax's partner, Dr. Bergnani, Lieutenant General, uh, which translates as Lieutenant General, 
Vilmos Nagy was overseeing midsummer maneuvers of the Hungarian First Army when his troops were astounded to see something he described as an immense fiery cartwheel. It was only a send from a hilltop near the village of Bata before it suddenly shot away vertically at tremendous speed. Didn't make a sound, vanished into the early afternoon sky. General uh, Nagy informed uh, Miklos Horthy, Hungary's regent, the object was doubtless a secret Soviet spy device of some kind. Now, although not officially one of the Axis partners, Spain sent 45,482 volunteers to fight on the Eastern Front in Germany's 250th Infantry Division, otherwise known as the Division Azul, or the Blue Division, which derived its name from the blue-shirted Falangist victors in the Spanish Civil War. At the Battle of Krasny Bor, where the Spaniards defeated a Soviet attempt to relieve the Wehrmacht siege of Leningrad between February 10th and 13th, 1943. Hundreds of them reported seeing a uh, washtub-shaped vehicle of great size, noiselessly suspended above about 300 feet over the fighting for about five minutes before moving off faster than any aircraft of which they were familiar could move. A German test pilot was trying out a new Messerschmitt ME-262, Jet fighter, September 29, 1944, according to Yves Nod, when his attention was suddenly caught by two luminous points situated to his right. So he shot at full speed in their direction and found himself face-to-face with a cylindrical object more than 300 feet long with some openings along its side and fitted with long antenna placed in front up to about halfway along its length. Having got to within 1,500 feet, of the craft, the pilot was amazed to see it was moving at a speed of more than 1,200 miles per hour, twice the speed of his jet at that time, and that was the world's fastest operational warplane. And it didn't have a prayer against whatever this was. Five years later, ground personnel observed something remarkably similar, silently hovering over Davis Monthan Air Force Base for about 10 seconds, fluttering as it disappeared in Arizona's cloudless spring sky. Materializing about 5 p.m. May 5, 1949, the object they described was black, round, and flat in shape, similar to a washtub. The next year, on the late afternoon of September 20th, the object or something like it appeared over a small city in southeastern Missouri. Many residents of Popular Bluff described the UFO as a translucent washtub. Well... Not only did the British and the Americans and the Germans have uh, interaction with uh, the so-called Foo Fighters, so did the Japanese. Japanese airmen were photographing unidentified flying spears and discs five years before the, the Allies encountered identical Foo Fighters over Europe. After carrier-based Nakajima B-5N torpedo bombers appear, uh, spearheaded the uh, attack on Pearl Harbor, Crew members on board the uh, aircraft were joined by extraterrestrial escorts all the way back to their ships. In most of World War II, Japanese encounters with Foo Fighters were nonviolent. Of course, on uh, April 24, 1945, that would change at the uh, Imperial Japanese Navy's Ginzan Air Group Base in Wonsan, port city located on the eastern side of the Korean Peninsula facing the Sea of Japan. It was about 3 in the afternoon. Ground observers sounded their alarm at the approach of an unidentifiable aircraft coming at um, in about a thousand feet off the ground. 
trail of Mitsubishi A6M2B0 fighters was scrambled and soon after closed with two unmarked server discs, each an estimated 100 feet in diameter. When there Twin wing-mounted cannons, the Japanese pilots immediately commenced firing on these strange vehicles, one of which was repeatedly struck by 20-millimeter rounds, but surprisingly remained airborne, though it was apparently somewhat damaged. Its companion then shone a bright beam of light on the nearest zero, which spun out of control and crashed into the sea. With that parting shot, the intruders rapidly ascended beyond the capabilities of the piston-driven pursuers and vanished at high altitude. Ufologists con contend that for some reasons, some multiple sightings of such phenomena seem to cluster around specific geographic areas. Less than seven years later, the Americans made our own uh, sightings in the same area of Korea. It was about midnight, July 29, 1952. Crew members on board a Boeing Super Fortress observed flying discs moving parallel to their plane at a high altitude. That was in, uh, written up in a United Press International War story reported in Washington, D.C.'s Daily News for February 19th. According to, the story, uh, to an Air Force spokesman, the objects remained with the B-29 over Wonsan for five minutes and with the B-29 over Sushan for one minute. He indicated several sighted but didn't give the number. Same time, another B-29 from different squadron over Sunshine, about 90 miles northwest, also encountered unknown craft described by four eyewitnesses as globe-shaped, bright orange in color, emitting an occasional flash of bluish light. While officials declined to elaborate on the bare announcement that the full investigation was underway, the open-minded uh, Air Force attitude toward the new reports contrasted with the blunt skepticism it is voiced about previous sightings of mysterious objects in the skies. You know, recently, militaries had to uh, be much more open-minded about some of the many sightings and gun camera films that have been made of unidentified flying objects. And uh, turned out there's been, in, even though Blue Book ended, supposedly the government um, uh, investigation of UFOs, that was not the case. Ufologists assert that some multiple sightings of this phenomenon made during the last two years of the Pacific War, and Foo Fighters were encountered almost as often by B-29 flight crews high above Japan as by the comrades in B-17s over Europe. Japanese people themselves were not unacquainted with these uh, Sorotobu Enban, as they called them. May, 20th, May 23rd, 1945, and Again, two days later, after we firebombed the capital city, a Tokyo businessman observed from his air raid shelter two odd-shaped blue-gray aircraft shaped like disc. As they slowly passed overhead, he described them as roundest objects, like hotcakes, about 20 yards uh, in diameter. They moved off without making a sound. You know, Japan's final brush with these otherworldly vehicles uh, came just after they agreed to lay down their arms. Early morning of August 28, 1945, members of the first post-war U.S. peace delegation boarded a twin-engine Curtis C-46 commando transport plane at uh, Lejima, a small island not far from Okinawa. They were scheduled for a fuel stop at Iwo Jima before flying on to Atsugi Airfield near Yokohama for the discussions of surrender terms with the Japanese uh, government officials. 
10,000 feet between Lejima and Iwo Jima. Sergeant Leonard Stringfield had been casually gazing out the airplane's starboard side window when his attention was riveted by the abrupt appearance of uh, three teardrop-shaped objects. They were brilliant white, like burning magnesium. They were flying in a tight formation, and they were traveling in a straight line through the drifts of clouds, seemingly parallel to the C-46 and equal to its speed. It seemed to be intelligently controlled, but there was no wings or fuselage that could be seen. At that same moment, the magnetic navigation instrument needles in the cockpit went crazy. The left engine sputtered oil and began to lose power. Transport faltered and lost altitude, dropping some uh, 50 feet by its port wing in a matter of a second. It, uh, it alarmed uh, co-pilot... Um, Suddenly appeared in the cabin to announce the obvious, we're in trouble, and shoved a pair of binoculars at Stringfield, desperately ordering him to find some spot of dry land in the vast stretch of ocean below for them to land on. plane was going off course, there was no question about that. After less than a minute of terror aboard the commando, the three objects disappeared into a cloud bank, and when they pulled away, the C-46's engine revved up and returned to normal plane began to regain the altitude it had lost and was able to safely land at Iwo Jima without further incident. When Stringfield's uh, harrowing encounter had been preceded by another daylight sighting made 5,255 miles away by Army Air Corps crews on the process of uh, bombing Marseille, April 25, 1944, during which they also saw groups of tear-shaped craft apparently monitoring the slaughter of more than 2,000 French residents in the burning city below. Axis' experience with off-world vehicles was fundamentally similar to that uh, confronted by the Allies, which uh, lends um, the incidents uh, some measure of credibility if both sides reported the same thing. Well, if you look at speeches made by various leaders in the past, None had a better reputation than General Douglas MacArthur. And he made a comment in one of his speeches. We deal now not with things of this world alone, but with the illimitable uh, distances and yet unfathomed mysteries of the universe. We're reaching out for new and boundless frontiers. Spaceships to the moon are the primary target in war. No longer limited to the armed forces of an enemy, but instead to include his Civil population, the ultimate conflict between a united human race and the sinister forces of some other planetary galaxy, of such uh, dreams and fantasies as to make life the most exciting of all times. There have been a number of leaders who talked about a unified Earth fighting some outside threat. Well... With the momentous words, these proceedings are closed. General MacArthur, representing the Allies, accepted Imperial Japan's surrender aboard the battleship USS Missouri on September 2, 1945, and officially concluded World War II, except for the unknown holdouts, who some of whom uh, continued to fight the war up until the 80s and 90s. Peace prevailed around the world for the first time in six years. As nations everywhere drastically scaled down their armed forces, 
but less than one year. After MacArthur officially closed the book on mankind's bloodiest conflict, a huge armada departed U.S. waters on August 26, 1946. They were sailing to Antarctic for Operation High Jump. The flagship was USS Philippine Sea. Captain Delbert Cornwell, commanding her 3,448 officers and enlisted men. At uh, 27,100 tons, the, that was among the largest aircraft carriers ever built. Powered by eight boilers, four Westinghouse-geared steam turbines for a combined 150,000 horsepower, range of 20,000 nautical miles. In addition to the crew, on the Philippine Sea's uh, 100 fighters, dive bombers, and torpedo bombers, she carried a arrays of 5-inch artillery and 40-millimeter Beaufort anti-aircraft guns, 4-inch, 2.5-inch, and 1.5-inch steel armor protected the 888-foot-long hull, hangar deck, and conning tower. This heavily armed and armored aircraft carrier was screened by destroyers USS Bronson and USS Henderson, as well as the submarine USS Senate, with 10 officers and 71 enlisted men on board. All the warships were supported by the tankers USS Canistio and USS Cacapon, plus the supply ships USS Merrick and USS Yancey. And their passage through Antarctic waters was cleared by the icebreakers USS Burton Island and USCGC Northwind. There were two seaplane tenders, USS Pine Island and USS uh, Kuratuk. The Martin PBM Mariner, another half dozen examples of the Sikorsky H-5 helicopter, uh, flitted between the Philippine Sea and the seaplane tenders. Number of ships and aircraft necessitated their division into the Eastern Group, commanded by Captain George Dufick, a Western Group headed by Captain Charles Bond, a Central Group commanded by Rear Admiral Richard Cousin, and a Carrier Group with none other than Richard E. Byrd himself in overall command. And this is the same Admiral Byrd who was renowned for his epic polar explorations during the 20s and 30s. Usually to be found aboard the USS Mount Olympus, an amphibious force command ship with advanced communications equipment and extensive combat uh, information spaces for large-scale landing operations. I mean, this was a fleet prepared for war. Now, collectively, these four groups were known as the Task Force 68. The assignment referred to officially uh, in an initial report to the, as the United States Army Antarctic Development Program. They were going to establish Little America 4, research base in Antarctic, train personnel and test equipment in frigid conditions, and to determine the feasibility of establishing, maintaining, and utilizing bases in the Antarctic. They want to investigate uh, possible additional base sites to develop techniques for establishing, maintaining, and utilizing air bases on ice and increase knowledge of Hydrographic, geographic, geological, meteorological, and necromagnetic propagation conditions in that area. 
The report also mentioned that the expedition aimed at consolidating and extending United States sovereignty over the largest practical area of the Antarctic continent. The goal previously emphatically denied repeated public pronouncements issued by the U.S. government even before Operation High Jump's uh, inexplicably premature end. In any case, its officially modest and entirely peaceful agenda was dwarfed and contradicted by the prodigious firepower and armed might assembled by Task Force 68, which is clearly nothing less than a massively armed invasion for conquest of the largest practical area of the Antarctic continent. In fact, there were few scientists and very little investigative equipment included in this task force. Most of its stated objectives were never attempted, much less achieved. No personnel training or equipment of testing ever took place. No effort was made to explore possibilities for other base sites involving aircraft or ships. No practice maneuvers or exercises of any kind were undertaken. Whatever was learned, if anything, about Antarctica's, Antarctica's uh, hydrographic, geographic, uh, geological, meteorological, electromagnetic propagation conditions was never disclosed. While Operation High Jump's declared goals represented uh, hardly more than an academic exercise, it was in reality an entirely military affair. Just before departing uh, for Antarctica, Byrd declared to representatives of the American press, my expedition has a military character and in all likelihood a military uh, uh, purpose. Professional physicist and historian Joseph Farrell tells how Byrd was returned to Washington, D.C., debriefed, and its personal and operational logs from the mission were seized and remain classified to this day. Something happened in Operation High Jump that scared the crap out of uh, elected officials. Thirteen warships, supported by a flotilla of supply vessels, plus 112 aircraft and 4,700 servicemen organized by U.S. Navy commanders and rear admirals, far out strips. Whatever might be required for some scientific investigation, no matter how ambitious it was going to be. This unlikely armada entered the Ross Sea ice pack December 31, 1946, finally landing at the Bay of Wales January 15th the next year. Work commenced at once on building a headquarters of Little America 4, one of the few previously announced expedition goals that was actually attained. Forty days later, the Central Group cast off to join the rest of Task Force 68's units already withdrawing toward South America for repairs, thus prematurely terminating their massive, costly mission, which had been originally scheduled for six to eight months. In only eight weeks, its aircraft logged 2,200 hours flying time over 22,700 miles, an area actually half the size of the United States, taking 70,000 reconnaissance photographs, only a few of which were subsequently released to the public by the Navy. To this day, the remainder, if they still exist, are classified. Aerial survey also recorded 10 new mountain ranges nobody knew about until then. Immediately after arriving at several Chilean ports for repairs, is Unusual as they were extensive, were the apparently aborted uh, expedition's high strangers and disasters that plagued it began spreading like a wildfire from loose with Operation High Jump uh, sailors. Even though they were under strict orders to discuss events of the previous uh, seven week, several weeks with nobody outside the task force. And Admiral Byrd himself contributed to the speculation. 
Mainstream press in Chile quoted some of his men to the effect that his task force ran into trouble and suffered many fatalities. I do what one would have expected to hear from the leader of a purely scientific enterprise. Van Anna published results of his interview, uh, headlined aboard the USS Philippine Sea, Mount Olympus on the High Sea, December 5, 1947, edition of El Mercurio, a conservative newspaper in Chile's largest, considered the country's paper of record. His Valparaiso editions, the oldest daily in the Spanish language currently in circulation, began being published in 1827. According to Van Etta, Admiral Byrd warned today it was imperative for the United States to initiate immediate defensive measures against hostile forces threatening from the Arctic or the Antarctic. Admiral explained he wasn't trying to unduly alarm anybody, but the cruel reality is that uh, in case of a new war, the U.S. could be attacked by flying objects that could move from pole to pole at incredible speeds. During the 1947 interview with El Mercurio, Admiral Byrd stressed his statement was made as part of a recapitulation of his own polar experience. In talking about the recently completed expedition, he said that the most important result of his discoveries was the effect that they could have on security of the United States. And he repeated... Uh, his previously stated point of view resulting from his personal knowledge gathered both at the North and South Poles. It's fantastic speed at which the world is shrinking, according to the Admiral, is one of the most important lessons he learned during his recent Arctic exploration. He says, I have to warn my compatriots that the time is ended we're able to take refuge in our isolation or only certainty that the distances, the oceans, and the poles were a guarantee of safety. On his return to Washington, D.C., after Byrd's interrogation by security service officers, he never uttered another word about Operation High Jump, which was simultaneously classified, legally preventing any of its veterans from ever discussing the mission. Shortly after that, the Navy published a brief, rather evasive summary of the Antarctic Expedition's achievements, which nonetheless stated that some losses had been incurred. And although these were glossed over and minimized, the Anonymous report nonetheless admitted that fully half of Byrd's seaplane and helicopter forces had been lost, and he himself was nearly brought down in the aircraft he was flying, avoiding a crash only because he jettisoned everything on board in order to stay aloft, save the barest essentials and reconnaissance film he had just taken. During that flight, he'd gone missing for more than three hours in an episode of Lost Time that was officially blamed on the failed radio communications. He was, in fact, in excess of three hours overdue, but his, pain, his plane did not run out of fuel. Summary further admits Task Force 68 did indeed suffer some human casualties, but all are supposedly due to accidental causes. December 30th, 1946, three men flying George 1, their Martin flying boat, did in, uh, died when it crashed, allegedly during a blizzard. Six surviving crew members were rescued 13 days later. The other man supposedly died in a construction accident, totaling the number of American fatalities at four. The official summary concludes by explaining that the mission was terminated because of the early approach of winter and worsening weather conditions, which were supposedly just what the Americans had specifically come for and required to see uh, test themselves and their equipment. Brief film about Operation High Jump, called The Secret Land, was released in 1948. Now, although it was more of a chest-pounding propaganda piece for the Navy than a real documentary, it 
gave viewers some feeling, however incomplete, for the expedition. This uh, short film would otherwise uh, unnoticed by the general public, and beginning with the onset of the Korean War two years later, fell into virtual obscurity over the next 40 years. After the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, millions of, defunct, of the defunct regime's secret papers were suddenly declassified. Among them, a surprising 1947 description of Task Force 68's mission to Antarctica. And Joseph Stalin should have known far more about the expedition than the American people is not surprising. America's close alliance with Stalin during World War II allowed his spies to infiltrate all levels of the U.S. government, including its armed forces. This espionage at peak, but didn't end with the 1953 conviction of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg for their betrayal of America's atomic bomb secret to their communist handlers. Early as the 1930s, through the Second World War and into the so-called Cold War, U.S. Congressman Samuel Dickstein of New York was a Democratic Party confidant of President Roosevelt, all the while serving as a paid agent of the NKVD, the forerunner of the Russian secret police, whether they called the KGB. And there were quite a number of others like him, and because of such as Operation High Jump. Now, details of the expedition, hidden from the U.S. public and the rest of the outside world, were transmitted by a Soviet operative to the Kremlin, where they languished until their rediscovery before the turn of the 21st century. Shortly after that, a Moscow television documentary featured a spokesman from the Russian army, and Vladimir Vasilov, a physicist for the prestige in Russian Academy of Science, and they finally disclosed the Stalin era report about Task Force 68's covert experiences in Antarctica. Quoted in the report is radio man John Swellswalk, who served aboard the USS Brownson. About seven in the morning on the early morning darkness of January 17, 1947, just two days after Admiral Byrd's Central Group made landfall at the Bay of Wales, Zwellswak said, we observed the following. On the horizon, a bright colorless light. We thought it was another ship. We're below the Antarctic Circle in an uncharted waters off Charcot Island in the Waddell Sea. Our radar is activated to no avail. I and my shipmates in the pilot house portside observed for several minutes the bright lights that uh, ascended about 45 degrees into the sky very quickly. We couldn't ID the lights because our radar is limited to 250 miles in a straight line. Our quartermaster, John Driscoll, recorded all this in our log. Nearly three hours later, the lights, and there were now five of them, reappeared in the same area of the Wood LC and began to rapidly close on the destroyer. Commander HMS Gimber ordered the ship's 40-millimeter buffers and our aircraft guns and 20-millimeter or Lincoln cannons to commence firing on the objects that flew over the bouncing at high speed and low altitude, estimated to be about 200 feet without achieving any hits. According to the Soviet espionage report, this encounter opened a series of brief but fierce skirmishes that lasted over the next several weeks between Task Force 68 and the lights, resulting in dozens of officers and men killed or wounded. Most casualties were suffered by Admiral Byrd's Central Group, which, even as the sanitized post-expedition Navy version of the report admitted, had to be evacuated by the uh, Burton Island icebreaker from the Bay of Wales, February 22, 1947. A variety of strange, silvery, silvery, strange, configured craft then executed noiseless, menacing passes at the naval units, which fired their ordinances at the triangular and boomerang-shaped vehicles. 
No casualties were sustained on either side during the first fle uh, fleeting uh, near misses. And the unidentified, uh, unidentifiable vessels didn't return fire before quickly vanishing into the morning sky. A few hours later, in the early afternoon, an enormous cigar-shaped object floated silently like some gargantuan dirigible low above the surface of the sea toward the task force. When the unmarked intruder unintentionally drifted within range of USS uh, Senate, Commander Joseph Eisenhower ordered the submarine's deck guns to commence firing. A direct uh, hit with a five-inch shell amidship caused the huge craft to veer wildly out of control and then crash nose down into the sea. That was Task Force 68's only kill in the, uh, in the, uh, during Operation High Jump. After four days of encounters and kind of a parting shot, the spherical lights executed a dramatic attack, witnessed by Lieutenant John Sayerson, a flying boat pilot aboard one of those seaplane tenders. According to him, the thing shot vertically out of the water at tremendous velocity, as though pursued by the devil and flew between the masts of the the ship at such high speed, the radio antenna oscillated back and forth in its turbulence. Aircraft uh, from the uh, Kuratuk, a Martin flying boat, that took off just a few minutes later, was struck with an unknown type of ray from the object and almost instantly crashed into the sea near our vessel. He said, I couldn't believe what I saw. The thing flew without making a sound. It passed close over our ships and harmlessly uh, through their lethal anti-aircraft fire. Having personally witnessed this attack by the object that flew out of the sea, I can all I can say is it was frightening. About ten miles away, the torpedo boat Maddox burst into flames and began to sink. Despite the danger, rescue boats went to her aid before she sank twenty minutes later. NKVD reports refers to Sarsen's ship as the Casablanca, possibly because the Russian spy had trouble pronouncing its real name, Kuratuk. Soviet agent also stated that an American vessel said a fire and destroyed was USS Maddox, either a torpedo boat or a torpedo-carrying destroyer. Official records list only the Henderson or the Brownson as part of Task Force 68, which uh, possessed no torpedo boats. Both destroyers survived the mission and are accounted for. A USS Maddox was indeed sunk by enemy action five years earlier by a German dive bomber during the Allied invasion of Sicily. Actually, there were at least three American destroyers known by the name USS Maddox all of them uh, contemporaneous. The U.S. Navy has long been notorious for falsifying the identity of its ships and writing their histories as they somehow run counter to or embarrass official policy. Cases in point include 1944's Battle of Slapton Sands before the Normandy invasion, which a number of vessels were sunk and many servicemen were killed by Craigsmarine torpedo boats, an event that went unacknowledged for the next 50 years. Reports of another American massacre off the Italian coast near Bari in 1943 were censored when numerous Allied units illegally carrying nerve gas were sunk by the Luftwaffe. Largest loss of U.S. troops at sea, 1,015 fatalities, and a single incident occurred when the British troop ship HMS uh, Rona was sunk by a German-guided missile in the Mediterranean November 26, 1943. Only after aged veterans won a lengthy and costly lawsuit against the U.S. Navy 57 years later did they receive official recognition for their role. And so, too, the Maddox, cited by the Soviet espionage, was similarly consigned to an official memory hole. February 26th engagement was the last experience by Task Force 68, when by then was already in headlong retreat from Antarctica. 
And although the identity of Invincible Lights escaped Lieutenant Sayerson, he wondered if there were maybe German wonder weapons operated by survivors of the recently defeated Third Reich, flying out of a secret Antarctic base. And there are some investigators that even today support this particular speculation, and not without some cause, I might add. Well, nine years before the mighty forces of Operation High Jump had been routed from the South Polar region, the Swartzwald, a freighter built during 1924, was refitted at Hamburg shipyards for Germany's most ambition Antarctic expedition at a cost of about a million Reichsmarks. It was almost a third of the entire mission's budget. Renamed the Swabenland after the Swabian region of southern Germany, the vessel was mounted with steam catapults for a pair of Dornia DOJ-2 wall or whale seaplanes. Dornier's a reliable, rugged, seaworthy aircraft had established its suitability for polar expeditions as early as 1925, when Norwegian explorer Roland Amundsen flew two of them into the Arctic. And now, 13 years later, they were being loaded with specially designed Zeiss RMK-38 Reihenhaus cameras and miles of film. By late 1938, the German Society of Poland Research was ready to undertake its assignment. Located in an area in Antarctica for establishment of a whaling station as a means of augmenting their country's production of fat. All they have to do now is go to any beach, and they've got plenty of fat. At the time, whale oil was the most important raw material for the production of margarine and soap in Germany. It was also something of a Scandinavian monopoly. Germany was the second largest purchaser of Norwegian whale oil, importing about 200,000 metric tons annually. And to avoid this dependency on foreign imports, the Reich needed to find an alternative source outside the Arctic. The mission, which wasn't secret by any means, was headed by Alfred Richter, veteran Arctic explorer and captain in the Kriegsmarine. He and 33 other members of the German Society of Polar Research, together with the Swabenland's 24 officers and crew, were addressed in Berlin by none other than Admiral Richard Byrd, Jr., who in the next decade would be heading his own expedition to the same direction. Thus, the first connection between Task Force 68 and the Third Reich appears only as a prelude to Operation High Jump. Bird evinced some sincere enthusiasm for the Germans' undertaking, wishing them good fortune, but regretfully turned down Reicher's uh, invitation to join because of the deteriorating relations between the two nations. December 17, 1938, the new Swabia expedition left the port of Hamburg, arrived a month and two days later at the Princess Martha coast of Antarctica. Dropped anchor at 40 degrees, 30 minutes west, and 40, uh, 69 degrees, 14 minutes south. Richard and company spent three weeks at Cream Malden Land, the uh, same area later invaded by America's Task Force 68. They flew their seaplanes, nicknamed uh, Passat and Boreas, in 15, min- in 15 missions across uh, 370,000 square miles of continent, taking tens of thousands of photographs and making a colored film of their travels. These also included the mountain still known as Richter Peak. Schermacher Oasis, named after Discover, Boreas's pilot Richard Heinrich Schermacher, and a nice free region, some 300 square miles in extent, embracing a trio of large lakes plus several smaller lakes filled with relatively warm, brackish water, green, blue, and red algae, 
and separated by barren reddish-brown rocks. And although the Germans reconnoitred, uh, reconnoitred nearly a fifth of Antarctica, most of it unexplored, they uh, didn't leave any permanent structures, save for a few hundred small aluminum stakes, flying swastika pennants dumped by the Donier whales on snow-covered ground between 20 degrees east and 10 degrees west. Honor of his ship, Ratchet christened this uh, area New Swabinland, or New Swabia, a purely cartographic designation never intended as a territorial claim. But the name still appears on many maps of Queen Maud Land from which the Germans departed February 26, 1939. Their successful expedition was exclusively an economic and scientific affair, contrary to post-war foolishness about uh, Nazi grasping at the South Pole. It was the precise opposite of our massive attempt at a military invasion with Operation High Jump. Soon after the expedition got back to Hamburg, April 11th, plans were laid for a return to Clean Maud Land, but these were canceled by the outbreak of war in September. Over the next six years of international conflict, no U-boats put in at New Swabia anywhere else along the Antarctic coast, contrary to uh, post-war speculation. If only because the Craig Madeline submarine's force was taxed to its limits and beyond by the exigencies of uh, transoceanic combat. All that U-boats have been satisfactorily accounted for since, and absolutely no evidence exists even suggests that a temporary or permanent uh, Wehrmacht installation of any kind was based in New Swabinland. Though there have been rumors based on speeches made by uh, high-ranking Nazi officials that there may have been uh, a base referred to as Base 211 constructed in Antarctica. Germans did establish a secret wartime base in the Arctic, as proved by the October 2016 discovery of remains on Alexandria Island. That island is more than 620 miles from the North Pole. Constructed in 1942, uh, Schatzgraber, uh, or Treasure Hunter, was an important tactical weather station for the reports it transmitted to Berlin concerning Allied supply convoys uh, heading for Murmansk in the Soviet Union. Russian archaeologists uh, retrieved more than 500 artifacts from uh, this secret base, including a catch of 75-year-old documents, well-preserved by the low temperature that described the immense hardships of survival above the Arctic Circle and the abandonment of the facility in 1944. That happened when supplies could no longer get through. The Germans couldn't maintain an outpost there. They'd have been far less capable of doing so in the South Polar region, where uh, sufficient outside support to uh, sustain even a few dozen personnel was absolutely impossible. Nor did Hitler's aeronautical engineers ever develop the kind of overpowering spherical lights that attacked Task Force 68. At the time of Admiral Byrd's early 1947 interview with Elmer Curio, no one, not even German scientists, uh, had built flying objects that could move from pole to pole with incredible speed. And although Captain Reicher's South Polar Quest had been entirely an academic enterprise, it was not above certain suspicions. Antarctica's 300-square-mile anomaly discovered by the Dornio um, whale pilots and scouted later by Lieutenant Commander David Bunger flying his Martin Mariner for Task Force 68 was, as Admiral Byrd stated, a land of blue and green lakes and brown hills and otherwise limited expanse of ice. An idyllic 
location for an installation, if not for U-boats, then certainly for something else. And why was Richter's full-length feature film documented in 1938-39 expedition shot in expensive color footage? But it was withdrawn from German movie houses after only a week, never to be seen again. Not even outtakes. And even that version was highly edited and truncated. Furthermore, like the mostly lost photograph record of Operation High Jump, only a handful of the many stills taken over New Swabia by the specially designed Zeiss cameras have ever been made public. And although the German Society of Polar Research took more than 16,000 aerial photos of Antarctica in 1939, Reicher allowed publication of only a chosen few rather unenlightening samples primarily showing the Swabenland and its Donia seaplanes or Reichsers men standing amid small swastika pennants. Detestive. The rest has never been seen by uh, outsiders. And shortly after the Swabenland returned to Hamburg, speculation began circulating even among professional scientists that the unusually taciturn spokesman of the Deutsch Antarctic Expedition were participating in a cover-up of some kind to conceal the sensitive nature of some undisclosed find. Controversial, naturally fed rumors of secret Wehrmacht military bases in the South Polar region. And when these conjectures uh, and placements proved non-existent, the few ufologists uh, wondered if Luftwaffe technology in the form of post-war uh, flying saucers uh, were hidden at the uh, in New Swabenland. Flying saucers there may have been in Antarctica, but they weren't made by uh, in Germany, at least according to all reports. On that note, we've come to the end of today's show. And if there's been any hiccups for my listening audience, that's because there was a, uh, my system crashed during the night. On that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow. And once again, you'll be listening to Ken Hudnall and the Ken Hudnall Show. Until then, have a truly great evening. <laughs>